You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. I trust it is well with your soul this morning. We are on the next to last of a nine-week series on the life of the Old Testament patriarch Jacob. Jacob's father was Isaac, his grandfather Abraham, uh, who God called out of Mesopotamia to go to a land that he would show him, made him great promises, make you into a great nation, a great people. I'll bless you. You will be a blessing to all peoples. And Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is the heir of that promise. It will be through Jacob and his family, his descendants, that these promises and God's covenant with Abraham would be realized. Um, You might think that sets him up for a life of great blessing, and it does, but that blessing comes, like all of our lives, in the midst of great struggle. And so this series is on Jacob has been called Struggle and Blessing. Struggle and blessing. And we pick up this Sunday in Genesis 34. Genesis 34. So if you have a Bible, I invite and encourage you to turn to Genesis 34. We're actually going to begin just a couple verses earlier than that, at the very end of chapter 33 in verse 18, which will help set up the story we see this morning in Genesis 34. So actually Genesis 33 in verse 18 We'll begin there and read through Genesis 34. Genesis 33, 18. And this is Gonsworth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. In other words, God is the God of Israel. Chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she'd born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they'd heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he'd done an outrageous thing in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I'll give you whatever you say to me. Only, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, well, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we'll be gone." Well, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Well, on the third day... When they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, Whatever was in the city in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, in their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Father, I pray now, as we consider this difficult story, that you would give us clarity and understanding. Father, in so many ways, this story feels so removed from us, so strange, so violent, so difficult. And yet, Father, I believe we have something to learn here, something to teach and help us. Your word is profitable, and I pray that you would make it so now in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. You would use your word by your spirit to change us and grow us, make us more like Jesus. I pray you do that now for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
number of years ago, well, when I was a teenager, I was about 16 years old, and I spent a couple summers working for Child Evangelism Fellowship. Maybe you're familiar with them, and they do, uh, one of the main things they do is five-day clubs, which are kind of backyard Bible clubs. And uh, so when I was about 16, I spent a summer teaching five-day clubs for Child Evangelism Fellowship, and I spent most of that summer out in kind of Lapeer County and out toward the Thumb. And uh, one Sunday night, uh, we, we, what happens is a church would kind of host clubs for the week, and they'd say, hey, we'll, we'll find find some people to host clubs in their home, and usually you'd have four in a day. You'd go, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, you'd have a club at someone's house, and maybe another one at 11, and two more in the afternoon, and you'd do that Monday through Friday. That's why it was a five-day club. But on Sunday night, often we would go to the church that was hosting the clubs, and they would want to meet the, the teens who were coming in to teach the clubs. And so in this particular church, somewhere on the Thumb, Carrow, I think it was, we uh, went out for the Sunday night service uh, in anticipation of the week of teaching, and uh, I was with uh, the, the area mission son, a guy named Lloyd, who was a couple years younger than I was, and uh, we went to this church, and they just kind of, out of the blue, called us up and said, hey, we're going to, we want to interview you in front of the church during the evening service, and we're like, well, okay, so they bring us up, and we're, we're standing kind of like this on the stairs leading up to the platform, feeling very unprepared and conspicuous, and, and I don't remember hardly anything, really anything at all about that, except one of the questions they asked was, what's your favorite Bible verse? I have no idea what I said. But they asked Lloyd what his favorite Bible verse was, and he just froze. He couldn't think of anything. And he sat there like, I can't, I can't think of anything. And so I was 16 and immature, and I thought it was clever. And so I leaned in, I said, Romans 3.23. It's a beautiful verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I said, Romans 3.23. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I just thought that was so funny. Because who, who, who would pick that verse to be their favorite verse? But he was in a tough spot. He couldn't think of any verses. But uh, who, who, would pick, who would pick that verse to be my wife's laughing? Of course, the, I would think that was funny. Uh, but I kind of think the same thing about this story, right, this morning. Not very many people, when you ask them, What's your favorite Bible story? Go, ah, oh, there's this story in the Old Testament about a girl named Dinah. Nobody says that. N no children's Bibles. There's a bunch of great children's Bibles on the market in the last 10 or 15 years. None of them have, you know, Abraham going to the promised land and Isaac finding his wife Rebecca and Jacob wrestling with God and then, oh, and now, Mommy, tell us the story about Dinah again, right? That story doesn't make it into the children's Bibles. It's a hard story. It's a difficult story. And it's a fair question to ask, why is this story even in here? I mean, there's obviously lots of things that happen in Jacob's life that don't make it into the Bible. We've got a handful of stories for a man who lived over 130 years. Most of his life doesn't make it into the Bible. But this story does. Why? And it's especially interesting considering where it sits in the big story of Jacob's life. He's come back from Laban in Mesopotamia, his uncle and, and also his father-in-law. He's come back with wives now and children and many possessions. He's been reunited with his brother Esau. 
He's wrestled and been given a new name, a new identity by God. So we might expect at this point, after what we saw last Sunday, that now Jacob has finally matured. He's he's finally grown up spiritually. Now he's going to go back to his father Isaac. He's going to go back to the, the one through whom the blessing is passed to him and God's promises have come to him, reestablish his relationship with him, his, his claim now to be the heir of Isaac's fortune and the blessings and promises of God and live happily ever after. We might think finally Jacob has learned his lesson and this is where the story gets sweet. But that's, that's not what happens. That's not what Jacob does. After meeting with Esau, back in chapter 33, verse 17, the verse right before we began reading, he says to Esau, he's going to follow him, but he doesn't. Instead, it says he journeyed to Sukkoth, he built himself a house, he made booths for his livestock. He doesn't follow Esau, back to where Esau's at in Seir or Edom. He, He doesn't travel to the south of Canaan where his father is at. He stays in Sukkoth. He builds a house for himself. He builds booths for his animals. Time elapses, evidently years. Dinah, who the story is principally about, couldn't have been more than six or seven years old when they came back to the promised land. And by the time of this story, she's old enough to be considered for a wife. Even if it was young, as it often was, even if she was 12 or 13, still five or six years have elapsed. Jacob is lingering on the edge of the land of promise. He's still outside. He's outside the Jordan River, outside the promised land. He still hasn't entered. He's away from his brother Esau, away from his father Isaac. And here at the end of chapter 33, where we began to read, he he finally moves into the land. He crosses the Jordan River, but he still doesn't go to his father. He moves up and over near the city of Shechem. And it says he He buys property, he pitches his tent, and he builds an altar there. I'm going to stay here. Why? Well, all of this is moving us toward the answer to the question, what's the purpose of the story? Why is it here? Jacob has had relationship issues all of his life ongoing conflict with his brother Esau. From the womb, conflict with his twin brother Esau. Deceiver of his father Isaac. Struggles with his father-in-law Laban. He's had a tentative, halfway committed relationship with God. But those, those relationships all have achieved a measure of resolution. He's reconciled with Esau, who's welcomed him back with open arms. Uh, undoubtedly, his father Isaac would do the same. He and Laban have reached a a peaceful truce. We could at least say they're not going to harm each other. God, in the last chapters, appeared to him, changed Jacob's name and identity, and said, hey, look, I'm going to fight for you. But there's one more significant relationship that still needs to be sorted out. Jacob's a wanderer. He's a nomad in a land that's been promised to him and to his descendants, but that he doesn't yet possess. That land, of course, is full of people. Full of people. People that don't worship the true God, Jacob's God. 
people who are going to be dispossessed and driven out by Jacob's descendants, people for whom we might say the clock is ticking. The land is full of people, people who are nonetheless much more numerous and apparently powerful than Jacob and his family. How is Jacob supposed to relate to them? How's he supposed to relate to them? See, the original readers of Genesis, of this story, face the same question. They too were just outside the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River. They too were encamped and had been wandering, waiting to come in. They too confronted a land full of people who didn't worship their God. They too were outnumbered and fearful of their ability to occupy the land that God had promised to them. Both the Israelites in Moses and Joshua's day, some 400 years after this story, face this same issue. But, but they have clear instructions. 400 years after Jacob's time, his descendants, named after him, named Israel, are perched on the edge of the land, but their instructions are clear. They are to dispossess the people. They are to drive them out. Don't intermarry with them. Don't settle among them. Don't become one people with them. Be separate from them. Be holy. These, those people must go. You would occupy the land that God is giving to you. But Jacob's situation is more ambiguous. He is, or at least should be, waiting for God to give him the land. He doesn't have to make it happen. He can't make it happen. He just needs to follow and be faithful to the Lord. In other words, Jacob's situation is much more like ours. The kingdom of God is coming to this world, but it's not here yet. He's going to remake a new heavens and a new earth where he will rule and reign in righteousness and peace, but it's not here yet. All his people will have a home with him there together, but we're not there yet in the meantime. How do we relate to the people and the culture around us? How do we relate to them? We're not to dispossess them and drive them out of the land. How are we to relate to them? Well, that is a, is a massive, complex question. We, we couldn't possibly cover every aspect of it, and I wouldn't want to pretend that I have all the answers to that question, but, but this story here in Genesis 34 gives us two wrong ways to go about it, two ways that we're liable to slip into as well. And then I want to look briefly at the end at one New Testament passage that helps point us in the right direction. Here's the first wrong way. We'll call it Jacob's way. Jacob's way. Three big problems with Jacob's way. Three big problems. They all start with P. Here's the first one, proximity. The first one is proximity. Jacob, after his encounter with God, we see, rather than rushing to his father, he stays there, perched on the edge of the land, building houses, settling in, moving to Shechem at the end of chapter 33, building a house, building a temple. Build, he's... I'm going to settle here. You remember the story of Lot? He's related to Jacob. He's like his great uncle once removed. I made that up. I don't know what it is, but it's something like that. 
And Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham was the one with the promise. Lot should have stuck close to Abraham. Abraham had the promise from God and was going to be blessed by God. But you remember the story. Lot, the Bible tells us, began to pitch his tent towards Sodom. His proximity began to change further and further from Abraham, closer and closer to Sodom, that wicked, wicked, godless city. And the closer he got, the more he absorbed their outlook, the more he absorbed their values, the more he absorbed their behaviors, so that by the time in Genesis 19 that God comes and says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, where do we find Lot? We find Lot positioned at the gate to the city. He's one of the leaders. He fits right in because his proximity changed from God and his blessing with Abraham to the wicked city of Sodom. And if it wasn't for God's grace, he'd have been destroyed with the city as well. Or consider the very beginning of Psalms in Psalm chapter one, familiar verses. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And many commentators have noted the progression. You're walking in the counsel of the wicked and then you, you stop, you stand with them and now you're sitting with them. And God says, blessed is the person who doesn't do that, whose proximity to the wicked has become so close. You know, in the history of the church, certainly many Christians have, have naively thought that the answer to this proximity is to separate themselves as wildly as possible from the world, from people who don't follow and love God. So we could go back to the early church, the three or four centuries in, we see the rise of the monastic movement, right? People withdrawing from everything, going to, uh, it's the desert in, um, uh, the first monks are in the Egyptian desert. They're withdrawing from society and corrupting influences to, to get away. No proximity to that. We're going to stay way out here together and just focus on God. Or on the other side of Europe, by the 6th and 7th century, the Irish monks are going out to these little islands called Skelligs, way out in, uh, a friend of mine just visited one of these. It's 600 feet above. It's 8, 10 miles out from the coast of Ireland. Way, you got to climb way up this rock, and they live in massive isolation. Of course, in the modern day, we saw uh, more uh, fundamentalist kinds of movements that they just separate themselves entirely from the world to protect the purity of their faith. Both of those kind of movements have, have suffered a lot of criticism, much of it deserved. But, but even if that goes too far, isn't it true that many of us have not gone far enough? That, that our proximity, we, we have stayed much too close, much too tight, much too intertwined with the world. We... We've just kind of settled in there. We haven't taken proximity seriously enough. We've pitched our tent too close to Shechem or too close to Sodom, and we begin to absorb the values and the outlook and the behavior of the people around us who don't love or worship or follow God. We could take many examples Let's think of one because it's so pervasive. Think, of, think about our media consumption. 
many people commenting from all sorts of perspectives that, that media is no longer. Certainly cable news is a great example. Cable news is no, no fair and balanced, unbiased purveyor of neutral information. Oh no, e even news is layered with agenda, perspective, and aim. All media is, inevitably. And what kind of proximity do we have? What kind of consumption do we have of forms of entertainment or information or news that, that affects our values subtly, affects our outlook, affects our behavior that we just absorb uncritically because we, we, have, we have adopted and we have settled into a kind of proximity to the world around us that is careless, unthoughtful, and ultimately risky. Well, let me give one more example. What about friendship? What about friendships? Where are your primary friendships? Now, now we have to be so careful here. Certainly, certainly we would never want to say and the Bible would never encourage us to say we should not have friends. We should only have friends in the church. We should only have friends among people who are following God. We would never want to say that. But, but probably some of us need to ask, where are the most influential friendships and relationships in my life? Are there, could there be friendships where, where I've just, the proximity is too close the influence on me is, is too negative. That maybe I need to take a step back. I want to be so careful with this. Because I'm, I would never want to encourage you to say, all your friendships should be in here. No, I would never want to say that. And yet, what, what influence? What influence are the friendships and relationships in your life? For some of us, it might be people in our own family that we got to say, I just need to take a step back. I don't need to cut them off, but I might need to take a step back because that proximity isn't, isn't healthy for me, and i got to be careful and wary. Jacob is reckless with his proximity, like Lot before him. He just moves right in, and it begins to influence him inevitably. Here's the other problem with Jacob's way. The second one, the first was proximity. The second one is protection. Protection. So not just the influence on Jacob, but on the people around him. His daughter Dinah, it says in 34 verse 1, she'd born, daughter, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she'd born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. The idea is she's out, more or less on her own, without her father or mother or family members to protect her. Now look, that doesn't seem strange probably to us. Today, girls grow up and they turn 16 and they get a car and they go visit their friends and they go to the mall and they do all sorts of things. But, but in this day and age, that's strange. It's just strange. In, in a relatively lawless environment, certainly where they are aliens, strangers, to, to let your daughter go out. It's not clear if she's going out innocently looking, I'm looking to make friends, or if she's out with a, a streak of rebellion, it doesn't really matter either way in the story. Jacob is not protecting his family well enough. So even if the exact details of that don't apply to us, 
The idea still does, particularly for parents, people in spiritual leadership. Do, do our parent, children know? Have they been trained? Are they sufficiently under our care and protection that they are aware of the dangers, aware of the influences? Do they know how to respond? Are we engaged enough to see where they are or could be at risk? Jacob's not. Jacob's not. It, it, it does, again, it doesn't strike us that Dinah is out visiting with women in the community, but it would the original readers. Why was she out there by herself? Here's the third problem with Jacob's way, and it's the big one. Passivity. We had proximity, we had protection, we had passivity. This is Jacob's biggest problem. In the face of all these threats, even after his daughter is assaulted, he's passive. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Verse 6, Hamor comes to speak to him. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing. Jacob holds his peace. He doesn't have much to say. In fact, we don't see in this chapter any emotional reaction from Jacob at all. But her brothers come in. Dinah is the daughter of Jacob and Leah. Leah and Jacob also have six sons. Those are the sons that are especially concerned. That's their full sister. And they are indignant and outraged and not passive. Throughout the story, Jacob's sons take the lead. When Hamor, who's kind of the prince, the leader of the town, and his son Shechem, the one who defiled Dinah, when they come out to speak, who answers them? Jacob's sons, not Jacob. In the last chapter, we saw last week, Jacob was the grappler, the one wrestling with God, clinging and fighting. Here, he seems to leave it all up to his sons. At the end of the story, he doesn't like the way they handle it. Why? Because no justice for Dinah? No. At the end of the chapter, when the story's done, he says in verse 30 to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me. You make me stink in the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. They're going to attack me and destroy me. He says, in effect, this is really going to cost me. You didn't handle this well. And Jacob's sons were undoubtedly thinking, you didn't handle it at all. In the face of this threat, even in response to the offense, you have been passive. Not especially concerned about the holiness or the welfare of his family. He comes across as concerned about his own comfort, his own safety, and his own welfare. Jacob's way is not the way to respond. Too close a proximity, too little protection for the people we care about, too much passivity in the face of threat and in the face of trouble that arises. But there's a second wrong way. That's the son's way, particularly Simeon and Levi, two of Dinah's full brothers. Their way is not the right way either. When the news comes in that she has been, it says, defiled, they are outraged. That word defiled occurs many times in the Old Testament, most commonly in the book of Leviticus, for people who are, are usually there it's translated unclean. 
They can't, unclean, they, so because of something they've done or touched or been a part of, they're, they're ceremonial unclean. They can't stay in the camp. They're outcast. They have to wait till daybreak and follow some kind of ritual or protocol so they can become clean and re-enter the camp. Dinah has been raped. She is therefore, in that context, defiled and unclean. She is virtually unmarriable. Virginity highly prized. We've seen this just recently in, in the, the updates that we've got from Irfan Abdul Latif, from for the, the Yazidi, the, the, the people ethnic group in northern Iraq, when ISIS came through and, and just raped many of them, many of them. And these women, they, they now have no prospects. They are defiled. They're unclean. Similarly here, Dinah is unclean, virtually unmarriable. But Hamor and his son Shechem come out with a plan. You know what? Hamor says, my son Shechem loves your daughter. He really wants to marry her. Why don't you just intermarry with us? Give us your daughters. We'll give you our daughters. We'll become, see this is significant, one people. And Shechem, the, the young man, steps up and says, look, you name the price. You name the price and I'll pay it. Which infuriates them even more. That's why at the end of the chapter it says, you're going to treat our sister like a prostitute? She's going to defile her and then take money in exchange for it? I'll, I'll pay you for her. So, so Jacob's sons use deception. That's their way. Well, we would do this. That's a great idea. We can intermarry together. Give us your daughters, we'll give you our daughters. But first of all, you have to become like us. And God has given us a sign, circumcision. You're going to have to be circumcised too. They're using the mark, the sign of God's covenant as part of their deception. And eventually, amazingly, Shechem and his father agree. And even more amazingly, they go back to the town and convince everyone else that this is a good idea. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they sold that, but they did. It'll be worth it. And everyone else goes along with it. And what ends up happening? After the deception, after the defilement, after the deception, comes destruction. It's merciless. They wait till the third day when all the men are sore, it says, and in pain, unable to do much to defend themselves, and Simeon and Levi, the second and third oldest sons of Jacob and Leah, come in town with a sword and kill every man in town. Not just Shechem, the offender, every man in town. It's merciless and excessive. And in the end, it's self-serving. The rest of the brothers hear about it, and they come in, and they carry off all the plunder. Everything in the city they take. The possessions, the women, the children, they're ours. That's not the right way to handle it either. It's so unlike the way Jesus treats his enemies. Simeon and Levi go out and slaughter their enemies. And, and there has been a real offense. But they go out and slaughter their enemies. How, how the men of the town must have 
pleaded for mercy. I didn't do it. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know who Dinah is. And they slaughter them mercilessly. How unlike the way Jesus treats his enemies. They've really offended him too. We've really sinned against him as well. But Jesus doesn't slaughter his enemies. Jesus lets himself be slaughtered for his enemies. Like a lamb led to slaughter, Isaiah 53 says of the Messiah. Jesus suffers. Jesus takes the sword. Jesus takes the punishment that his enemies deserve so that he can make them his friends. Justice must be served. But in his grace and love and mercy, he absorbs the punishment himself so that he can extend forgiveness and reconciliation and grace to his enemies. In the gospel, Jesus is making his enemies his friends. And that's exactly what he calls his people to. I think at the end of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his followers, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, blessed are you when people mistreat you. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are wrong ways to relate to the world around us. Jacob's way is the wrong way. Passive. No protection. Too much proximity. Too close. His son's way is the wrong way too. Vengeance. Punishment. Hostility. What's our way? Well, there's a lot of complex issues here, but I just want to look at one verse as we finish this morning. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at just one verse, verse 14. It says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, see, Jacob and his sons got it wrong in both those ways, right? Jacob, unconcerned with holiness, too much proximity, too close, too much absorbing of the world and its values, loses the holiness. His sons go off in a vindictive, vengeful rage. They lose the peace. And so Jacob's self-concern is, is a bit disgusting, but he's not wrong. These people are going to hate me. And we see in the next chapter, chapter 35, the only reason they don't come after him is because God, continuing to be gracious, doesn't let them, puts the fear of uh, Jacob in these people so that they don't follow him and wipe him out. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Paul will say something similar to Timothy, right? As much as possible, be at peace with all men. Pray for your leaders. Get along as much as possible. Strive to live with peace. But don't lose the holiness. 
Don't become so like the world, so absorbed by the world and its values and priorities and behaviors that, that you become indistinguishable, unholy, because without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how then do we relate to the world around us? Genuine peace, genuine love, genuine friendship, we don't lose holiness. We don't get so close that we don't, we don't become one people with them. That, that's why Paul will say in Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's why he says you, uh, a believer shouldn't marry an unbeliever. Too, too close, too much proximity, too likely to pull you away from Christ. Peace, love, friendship and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for Springview Community Church. Lord, we, we want and need to be a people who both are deeply committed to living holy lives, distinct lives, lives governed by you and your spirit and your word, lives that will look strange, sometimes, will look inexplicable sometimes to those around us who don't know you. Lives really set apart for you in true holiness. And at the same time, Father, we want to be a people who live at peace, genuine friendship, genuine love toward those who don't yet know you. We want to be, as, as Jesus says in that Sermon on the Mount, Salt and light, commending the gospel by our love and care and concern. Father, this is a difficult line to walk. And so we need help. We need grace to both love and live at peace and yet not, not put ourselves in such proximity under such influence that we are drawn away from the holiness that you call your people to. So Lord, we will need much help with this. And we pray for much Grace, Father, I pray, uh, I think for many of us, probably the most pressing concern is the proximity we have to people, institutions, media that, that draw us away and, and, and influence, impact our outlook, our values, and our behaviors. I, I pray that every person here would would think carefully, pray carefully, consider carefully in what areas of their life uh, these other influences are drawing us away from you and your word. And that you would change us, give us hearts to long to know you, long to live in obedience to you, conformity to your will and to your word and ways. Lord, we pray again. We need much help. We pray for that grace. Um, I pray it in Jesus' name. I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here together. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, and make you holy completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. May he surely do it this week as he draws us to himself and makes us holy like Christ. God bless you. Have a great day.